Whoa. Sorry. Well, brothers and sisters, we have finished our series on the Ten Commandments, but but I'm hoping and praying very much that you remember the key points of that series. Remember the key points of that series as Jesus gave them to us, really. Remember that Jesus showed us by His life. Not, not only did He come to save us from our sins, from the things that we have done to break relationship with God and with other people and with this world He called us to care for, but also Jesus came to show us what it means to live a truly human life, right? That, that saying, oh, I'm only human, is misrepresenting what it means to be human. That we were created in God's image to love as God loved us, as an image, a reflection of God's love for us. This is why Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that this is, this is the summary of all of the law and the prophets. And so when we come to the Ten Commandments, we are reminded through Jesus' teaching of the incredibly high principles that he teaches us that we are not even to look at someone lustfully, that we are not to be even angry with people if we can at all avoid it. We are to be free from these things. We are to be free from murderousness, free from adulterousness, free from all of these things, idolatrousness. And that we are to focus through our living and all that we say and do on loving God and loving our neighbors. And further, that not only did Jesus exemplify this in his own life, but he also sent his Holy Spirit to live within us so that as we are saved from our sins through Jesus and as we have seen the example of Jesus' life, as we also have the Holy Spirit living within us, we can learn and grow in the freedom of loving God and loving our fellow human beings. And this is all important as we start. I mean, it's important no matter what, right? It's important no matter what. But it is also important as we start this next series. We're going to spend some time. I'm not sure exactly how long. We'll see what the Spirit leads with. But we are going to spend some time looking at biblical outsiders. Biblical outsiders, people who for some reason or another don't belong according to society or according to religious leaders or according to who knows, right? And we're going to look at what God does with the outsider. And I'm hoping and praying very much that as we look at the outsiders in the biblical narrative, we will be reminded of a couple of things. First of all, we will be reminded of our own outsider status. How we too, apart from Jesus, 
do not belong in a lot of ways. And that will hopefully help us to empathize with those in this world who don't belong, at least in terms of how we sometimes think about them. But then further, I am hoping as well that not only will we recognize our own outsider status and not only will we be able to empathize further with people in this world who are generally treated as if they are outsiders, but we will also learn and remember and start to act more and more as Jesus would to those who are outsiders as Jesus did for us. The first outsiders that we are going to look at are from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to turn with me into the uh, scriptures and see Genesis chapter 3, uh, we will look at it. Just as you're finding Genesis chapter 3, or if you're following on, um, if you're following on with the screen there, I want you also to uh, think about these words from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So just you can just close your eyes to hear this. And listen carefully, because there are some things in this little passage in Colossians that we tend to gloss over a little bit. <clears throat> listen to what Paul says to the people of Colossae, and to us. The Son is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, heaven, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones <coughs> or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There are a couple things that we need to highlight there. First of all, this is a reminder that not only were all things created through Jesus Christ, but in fact, all things are sustained each and every moment of each and every day through Jesus. Right? We've got to remember that. There, there's a famous book that was written long, long ago by a fellow named Brother Lawrence. And it's talk, it talks about practicing the presence of God. And one of the ways that we practice the presence of God, one of the ways that we practice that, that spiritual discipline that Paul talks about, that is praying without ceasing, one of the ways that we do that is by remembering and keeping constantly before us that we are very literally in the presence of God at every moment because he is holding us together. Every molecule, every atom, every cell, every, every synapse, everything that we are is holding together because of God's will exercised through Jesus. 
I'll remind you again that, that if it were possible for someone to distract God from creation, if it were possible to distract God and God stopped paying attention to the universe, it would cease. God is not the cosmic clockmaker who creates things and then just lets it run on on its own. No, no, no. He's actively keeping you and every particle of this universe together every moment of every day. And the more we can remember that, that God is holding us together, the more we can practice being in His presence. But then secondly, we want to notice in verse 19 and 20, for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, that is, in Jesus Christ, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Ultimately, the truth is that all things... All people, all things will be reconciled to God one way or another. Now, now, you have to remember that God still in His sovereignty somehow allows us free will of some kind. And so reconciliation doesn't always look like, hey, everything's good between us, now we're buddies. Reconciliation sometimes means justice is being done. And if you if you consistently and stubbornly and ultimately refuse the free gift of grace that God is offering to you, then God will reconcile with you through His righteous judgment being carried out upon you because you will not accept His gift, right? And that's not mean, that's not nasty, that's just righteousness and justice and holiness. But for all who will receive, who will accept Jesus' sacrifice, and all the things of this creation, all of those things, they are going to be reconciled to God. Which means in part that they will no longer, in any sense of the word, be outsiders. They will be inherently and integrally part of the family of God. So, let's turn to our official scripture for this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, of course, (coughs) this is the story as recorded by Moses of the fall of Adam and Eve. But it is also, of course, the story of our fall too for a a couple of different reasons. One, theologians generally consider Adam and Eve to be representative as those who were created by God. They represent all of humanity. And so their choices, as it were, as our original mother and father, our original king and queen, their choices are choices that they make not only for themselves, but also for all of us. 
But then secondarily, because you could sit there and go, well, that's not fair. I didn't ask them to make that choice for me. I didn't want that. Ah, except secondly, we also prove through our lives that we make the same choices they do. Individually, corporately, together as humanity, we are always, sadly, making that same choice of rebelling against God. So this is the story of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, but it is also our story. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice, Notice several things. First of all, the serpent... It says more crafty than any wild animal in the garden. And that's true, but later on in Scripture, the serpent is identified with the Satan, the, 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 the adversary, the accuser. He is Satan. Okay? So uh, Satan is the one who is there. And notice, of course, how he twists God's words. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Had God said that? No, of course not. He didn't say that at all, right? And Satan knows that, but he's playing his little manipulation game, right? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Good, excellent. Way to go, Eve. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Which is interesting. Now, now I don't know whether... Okay, you know how when you watch a movie or whatever, right? Even if it's a biography or whatever, you don't see every single detail of every single day in the movie. There are things that are left out. And the scriptures does the same thing, right? We don't get every single detail in fact often in the scriptures the details that are left out are are very very important and so we don't know whether this is a um a distillation of the the conversation that satan and eve had or whether it's comprehensive in that every detail is recorded but it's interesting for sure because notice that Eve says that they must not eat of those trees, but also we must not touch it or we will die. Which is not true. God never said that. And so clearly something is already messed with in Eve's heart and mind. She is already on the pathway to being deceived. Right? And and in this whole scenario, we cannot place all of the blame on the serpent. Right? Eve tries to do that a little bit later on. Right? We cannot place all of the blame on the serpent. You and I, we can't go, the devil made me do it. Right? We have to take personal responsibility. Right? Right? But we don't know how much of this is just Eve has been genuinely messed around and how much of this is Eve herself starting on the journey towards deceptiveness. Regardless, 
Regardless, she says you can't even touch it or you will die, which is not what God said. And the serpent latches on to that and says, you will not certainly die, which is kind of true, but kind of not true. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, hey, that's, how can that be bad? We can be like God. Isn't that great? God is good. I'm like God. God, that's got to be good, right? Eh, anyway. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, and you can see Satan sort of lauding all of these virtues to her over the course of who knows how long, right? Look how good it is. Look how ripe it is. Look at how shiny it is. Look at how it's going to give you wisdom, make you like God, right? She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, this is really important too, right? Because over the, the eons, it has been shamefully true that many theologians and church fathers and so on and so forth have treated Eve very badly, right? She's the one right? They, they kind of act like Adam does, right? And Adam says, the woman you gave me, right? And he doesn't take personal responsibility. But look at the text. It's been there all along. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he's right there watching this whole thing play out. Huh, I wonder what she's going to do. Huh. Ooh. Oh, she took, oh, she's, oh, well, I guess I better take it. (laughs) My wife told me to eat the fruit. I guess I better eat the fruit, right? So at the very least, Adam's a bit of a moron. (laughs) But at the worst, he is absolutely complicit in this. There is no way he can claim justifiably that it wasn't his fault. Right? He's right there. Anyways, he's right there. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the start of their outsiderishness. If I can make up another word, right? This is where it begins because suddenly they feel shame. They were, they were glorious king and queen in the garden God had created for them. They were, they were sitting on the throne that God had carved out for them, ready to take care of and rule over the world in love and righteousness and justice and in the name of God reflecting Him. There was nothing to be ashamed of. And yet suddenly they see, "Uh uh-oh, I'm naked. That's dirty. 
I'm naked. I'm, I'm so vulnerable. What is he thinking when he looks at me? What is she thinking when she looks at me? What will God think when he looks at us and sees our nakedness, not only the nakedness he created, but the nakedness that we have revealed by opening ourselves up to this knowledge of good and evil. We're so ashamed. And so they begin to be outsiders. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They know that that's stupid. They know that that's not going to work. They know in their heart of hearts that God can see beyond the trees that are around them. He knows Right? But they're so ashamed and they know they don't belong anymore. They feel their outsiderness. And they're so they feel so strongly that they don't belong that even though they know it's foolish, even though it's not possible to hide from God, they nonetheless try to hide themselves and their shame from God. But here's where it really starts to get interesting. Because up until now, this is just basically a Shakespearean tragedy taking shape, right? This is basically by the end, Hamlet and everybody else are going to be dead. It looks terrible, right? But this is, this is where things start to turn around because what does God do? God doesn't just say, well, you know what? They did it. They earned it. Sayonara. No, he goes looking for them. He goes looking for them. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Where, where even did this concept of nakedness come from? Right? You don't go and say to the squirrel, Ooh, Look, that squirrel's naked. We, we, do, we do say about our cat, our cat has a little collar. And when her collar comes off, we say, oh, she's naked. Right? But that's just funny. Well, it's funny to us anyways. <clears throat> May not be to you. That's fine. Right? Um, but anyways, I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, oh. The man said, the woman... You put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Right? it notice, notice how he, he tries to make his role in this as passive as possible. The, the woman you gave me, you gave, you gave her to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. <laughs> it's all about what God did and what Eve did. And not about what Adam did. I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And you can see the, the, the breaking apart of the creation that God had made so good and so well ordered, right? Eve and the snake, the serpent, right? Because not only is the serpent Satan, but, but also it, it is true that, that the serpent is here also symbolic in some ways of humanity's relationship with creation and with the animals. And so there is going to be enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And see, this is where we get into what God does with outsiders. What God does with outsiders, even outsiders who have proclaimed themselves whether they meant to or not, who have proclaimed themselves to be enemies of God. They have decided to set up their own kingdom of wisdom, of knowing good versus evil, and God says to them, you, you have broken yourself off from me. However, however, this is not the end. This is not the end. Because the offspring of the serpent, that offspring's head will be crushed by the offspring of the woman. Right? Of course, we know that that is pointing directly, squarely at Jesus. Jesus who will crush the head of our enemy, Satan. And you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, now, this is interesting, okay? So we need to remember <clears throat> the difference between a curse and a description, okay? So people have often called these verses the curse, right? The curse that God gives people and so on and so forth. Mm, 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 right? These are God describing the consequences of what they have done. Right? God does not say to them, I curse you. Not at all. Not at all. He is describing for them what is going to happen because of their actions. Right? It'd be like me describing to you what the outcomes or what the consequences are going to be of you chopping off your finger. 
you chopped off your finger. You're, you're going to have trouble with, you know, things like writing and holding a coffee mug, and you're going to have trouble with, you know, all kinds of things, right? You know, and, and, and those are consequences of what happened. But I'm not standing there going, I curse you to forever have difficulty signing your name. That's different, right? This is a description of what is going to happen and in some ways what God is going to do too, right? <clears throat> now, the word curse does come in here and we'll get to that in just a second. To Adam, he said, oh, right, sorry, going back, right? For, for women, right? Um, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, okay? This is not a curse <laughs> it is also not a prescription either right it's not that god is saying it's not that god is saying you will be cursed because you're always going to want your husband and your husband is always going to rule over you and that's just going to be a terrible situation for you. That's not, it's a description of what's going to happen. And indeed, the, the, the reality is, is that over the thousands of years since that time, it has been generally true that men have ruled over women in this world. Not always, not in all places. It doesn't always look the same, but often it is an accurate description of the structure of the world, right? Right? And then <clears throat> it is not a prescription, though, in that it has to be that way either. God is just saying, this is how it's going to play out, right? It doesn't have to be that always men will rule over women in all things. In our house, for example, Gwyneth is way better at financial matters than I am. And if I ruled over her with financial matters, we would be in a disastrous mess. <laughs> We'd be living in a cardboard box. Right? Okay? There are good and proper structures for family and so on and so forth, but it's not a rule. God is not, among other things, putting in rules about how you ought to behave in this particular passage. All right. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the day of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, there are two things here that are really important to notice. First of all, <clears throat> Notice that God is describing the curse that Adam brought onto the land himself. God did not curse the ground, right? And Adam didn't stand there and say, 
I curse you ground. But God nonetheless describes for Adam that in effect, one of the consequences of what he has done is that now the ground is cursed. One of the consequences of chopping off your finger is that you can't hold the teacup very well. One of the consequences of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when you weren't supposed to is that now the ground is cursed. Right? And, and so God is describing the reality of how the ground is now cursed because of Adam's choices and all of the implications of that, which anybody who gardens, anybody who you know, tends crops, anybody who farms at all, they, they know, right? They know. It's still there. You use Roundup. Do you still have weeds that cause you trouble ever? No? Pests? Anything? No? No? Wow. Way to go, farmers. <laughs> right? Nature is still a difficult thing to get the crops from, partly because of what we have done. But then secondly, we see the lie and the truth-ish of what Satan said to them about, you will not surely die. See, of course, the truth of it is that yes, yes, you will surely die. It's absolutely 100% true. On the other hand, it's also true that they don't die instantaneously. It's not like Adam and Eve took a bite and, oh, dead. Right? And so Satan twists the words of God. <clears throat> right? Satan twists the words of God, but the truth comes out. You are dust. And to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. And this is very important too, of course. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out and his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Amen. Now here's where we start to put together the pieces of the puzzle about what God does with someone, with two someones who have declared themselves on behalf of all humanity to be outsiders, to be people that no longer belong. Because God has a plan. God has a plan. And that plan, weirdly enough, starts with banishing them from the garden in some ways. In order for you not to be outsiders forever, God says, I will, I will not allow you to make your situation worse. 
I will not allow you to make your situation worse. And therefore, for your own good, you may no longer live here in the Garden of Eden. How does that work out? Well, think about this. Think about this. I, I remember hearing uh, quite a, a number of years ago a, um, a show on the radio, um, a CBC Spark. Um, anyways, it talks about future technology stuff, whatever. And they were talking about how some people have this idea that in the not-too-distant future, technology and science will be so great that we will be able to overcome death itself and live forever either because we cure all the diseases or because you know our genetic manipulation is so great that we can just create new bodies for ourselves or because we upload our minds into the computers i don't know whatever doesn't matter right and i and i was listening to that story and i felt compelled to write into the show I wrote into the show, I said, why would anyone want that? I mean, not only is there the question of whether there's any actual continuance between my, myself and my brain uploaded in a computer, but also there's the reality that I will still be me. Honestly, I don't want to put up with myself the way I am for all eternity. I don't want to be someone who a hundred thousand years from now is still struggling to overcome the sin in my life. I don't want to be the guy who a million years from now is still making his wife upset because of something he did the other day. Why would I want that? I mean, I love you, honey. I just don't want to make you upset. Right? <laughs> right? Eternal life under those terms is not a gift. It's a nightmare. It's terrible. And so imagine, here's the Garden of Eden and the tree of life is still sitting there and God says, we do not want them to be eternally in this place where they are full of the knowledge of good and evil and they're so ashamed they can't even live in the skin that I gave them or be in my presence. It is not okay for them to be in that state eternally. And so we're going to take that away. We're going to take that away for now, for now, until my plan is complete and things are made right and all things have been reconciled through my son, Jesus Christ. For now, you may not eat of the tree of life because it would be terrible for you. And so out you go. Kick them out of the Garden of Eden. Set up the cherubim. Have the flaming sword. It's good. It's part of the plan. This is part of the plan of how God takes an outsider, an outsider on behalf of all humanity and starts to make a plan to bring them in again. And then we see, of course, that there is also an incredible plan in there in lots of other ways. 
right? Because the reality that childbirth is going to be harder and more painful and the reality that men and women will have these struggles among themselves and the reality that it's going to be hard to work the ground, you can almost hear God saying, okay, okay, okay. If you have the knowledge of good and evil, then man, you're going to have to grow up. You are going to have to, you have chosen to learn the hard way. And so you're not going to be dancing around in a garden, naming all the cute tigers and whatever. You've got to work. You've got to spend thousands of years realizing how bad it is what you have done. And you need to spend thousands of years slowly, slowly learning once again to listen to God. You're going to have to spend thousands of years even getting ready for the Messiah to live among you. And that time is going to be important. It's going to be hard. It's going to be terrible. And yes, there will be beautiful and wonderful and God-granted, gracious, awesome things in there too. But my plan to bring you home starts now. And then, of course, we see that, that culminated, that, that, that <clears throat> emphasized in that little phrase about the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that the, the woman whom Adam blamed, even though he had no justification for that whatsoever, the woman whom Adam blamed is the one who is going to give birth to the one who kills the serpent. God says effectively to Adam, I saw what you did there. I saw what you did there passing the buck. But no, uh uh. Yeah, of course. Eve is guilty. You're guilty. The serpent is guilty. But she is not just your scapegoat. She will be the one to birth my son the Savior. See, this is what God does with outsiders. Now, before we wrap this up, I want to ask you something to ponder, to ponder over the next week. You can, you can answer right now, too, if you want. How have you, when have you ever felt like an outsider? How or when have you felt like an outsider? For me, for me, I don't know how much of this was real and how much of this was in my own head and heart and emotions because I was struggling with depression even though I didn't know it at the time. But basically, everything from grade four to grade 12, I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. I felt like nobody liked me. I felt like I was a loser. I thought that I was stupid and lazy and good for nothing. I, I, I thought that all, all of my classmates 
you know, rated me slightly above pond scum, perhaps, in the great scheme of things. I, I, when I was a teenager, I would try and date girls, I think, partly because I was just so desperate to have somebody care for me. Because <laughs> I felt like, I felt like, why would anybody do that? And so I felt for years and years and years, I did not belong anywhere. What about you? When have you felt like an outsider? You owned it. You owned it. Cole said, for those of you who couldn't hear, when he graduated from um, the Christian school uh, from grade eight and he went to uh, Athens District here for the first time and his very first day, he didn't have any friends at this new school or anything like that. And his very first day, he wore a T-shirt that says, I have sent you out like uh, sheep among the wolves, right? Um, And so he just owned it, right? Um, But that perhaps didn't set him up for the greatest embracing from the school community. And so uh, you felt like an outsider there. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, Randy. Okay. Randy really identifies with, yeah. And I knew we were basically twinsies in a lot of ways. You're clearly the taller and more handsome of the two. So... <clears throat> Did you just say woo? Oh, I was gonna say, wow, ouch! <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> All right, okay, okay. That was—I was gonna feel like an outsider right there. <laughs> um, anybody else? Yeah. Right. So Kent, Kent identifies, for him, he moved communities, really, which meant that he ended up going to a different high school and knew absolutely nobody there. Um, and that can make you feel awfully alone. Over the next week or so, and, and throughout this series, try to think about those times where you have felt like you didn't belong. Because... When you have had those times, if you can remember those feelings, if you can remember those experiences, that can help you identify with these people we will talk about who themselves did not belong. And that can help you to identify with and love the people who today feel like they are outsiders wherever they may be found. But remember always that God's plan and desire is to reconcile all things through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And that yes, of course, 
you have the freedom to choose not to accept that free gift. But you also, brothers and sisters, very much are invited to be insiders again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that for so many of us, we have through the power of your spirit, through the gospel message, through the good news of Jesus Christ, through your love, Father, we have accepted the gift that you have given us. Not, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, look at us, how great we are, but, but rather just to your glory. And so, Lord, we are so grateful that so many of us have been adopted and welcomed into your family, that we have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit has made his home within us and dwells within us, making us temples for you, O God. O God, help us as we look at the story of outsiders throughout the scriptures. Help us to remember to remember and empathize with those who felt that they did not belong. And help us to remember that you yourself, Jesus, were despised by men. And help us to remember what you have done and are doing and will do for the outsiders of this world, us, included. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, our great Savior and Lord. Amen.